the way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right. In this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Walker from the University of Central Florida. And Dr. Walker is out with a really uh, incredible new uh, article that he wrote for Orlando for the OrlandoSentinel.com. It's called Why It Is Important to Recognize Black Women. And anybody that would write an article like that is welcome. Always on Ariva Martin in real time. Welcome back, Dr. Walker. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Kudos to you on that article. Just real quickly, what prompted you to pay tribute to black women on the last day of Black History Month? Well, first of all, to give a shout out to black women, because as I said, they're, I said in the article, they're the backbone of democracy. And I firmly believe that and highlighted some key facts. Secondly, to also offer this pushback because I'm based in Florida about erasure when it comes to black history. And then thirdly, as you and I have joked on the show, is that uh, while I'm not a native Floridian, I'm part of the resistance. So those are the three reasons. Well, thank you for that. And I just hope everyone goes to OrlandoSentinel.com and check out this article. It's really incredible that uh, on the last day of black history that a man is paying tribute, not men pay tribute to women all the time, but I thank you on behalf of all the black women that you were saluting in that article. So uh, kudos to you for doing that. And also joining me in this hour is KBLA's own host of A More Perfect Union and also our national political affairs analyst, Dr. Nee Cordelay Corte. Hello, Nee. Hello, Ariva. <laughs> it's a point of uh, personal privilege to call you Nee instead of Dr. Nee Cordelay Corte. Because course, we're friends, course. we're colleagues, we've been working together for years, and, and glad to have you back. Always a pleasure. I want to start with this Supreme Court today. You know, Biden was trying to make good on a promise uh, that he made to students and young folks when he was running for office, and that was to relieve them of some of the student loan debt. We know basically student loan debt that can be crushing. Uh, I had a man on my show uh, a couple of months ago. He had over $300,000 in student loan debt. He had gone to multiple uh, colleges, you know, pursuing his undergraduate degree. Then he had several graduate degrees and literally had over $300,000. And he had chosen to go into the field to work uh, for his state government. So we know he wasn't making a lot of money as a state employee, but yet he had that kind of crippling debt. And today the Supreme Court faced, you know, the conservative court that has insisted that government initiatives with major political and economic consequences like the student loan debt relief uh, has to be authorized by Congress. Are you surprised, uh, Neve, that the conservative Supreme Court seem to be pushing back and uh, not likely that they're going to rule favorably to the Biden administration on this student loan debt issue? Yeah, and, and I'm one of those uh, folks that uh, bears the burden of student loan debt, four degrees uh, after the fact. Uh, and uh, the student loan relief program would have been beneficial to uh, not just myself, but you know to a number of folks out there uh, with student loans. We know that uh, upwards of 60% of the folks that would have been uh, impacted uh, by this program uh, are black folks. Um, and not only do we know that, but I'm sure there are a lot of folks on the right, particularly these attorney generals that were a part of bringing this suit forward. Uh, I think there are uh, conservative members of the Supreme Court uh, uh, and all members of the Supreme Court uh, understand that. I think 
you know, what we can hope for here is maybe a plot twist in what feels like uh, an inevitable ruling uh, that will punt back to Congress uh, to decide this uh, and, you know, thus sort of limit uh, the president's executive authority on this. But, you know, we know that, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, uh, you know, has written about the crushing student loan debt that uh, he's had to to manage over the years. I think he was three years into his term on the the Supreme Court when he finally was able to pay them off. Uh, I think he also uh, been reported uh, that uh, there was a delinquency in terms of his student loan payments, in part because uh, the notices were going to his grandparents' home uh, and not to him. And so I don't know. We 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 might be surprised to. to that of a, to have a rare moment of uh, of sympathy and compassion for black folks and those struggling with student loans from uh, Justice Thomas. But of the seven justices, I learned uh, that uh, the folks that are parents, uh, four have signaled uh, their investments uh, in um, these tax-free college savings accounts. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch uh, have the most on hand, at least $600,000, $300,000 respectively. Well, you know, most people don't have that. Most folks don't have the luxury of having parents that have that kind of six figures, you know, stashed away for college. And so uh, I think we should be looking for any potential plot twist in this ruling. Um, Is it going to go 100% the way of uh, these conservative uh, attorney generals that have brought a suit? Um, I'm not quite sure on that, uh, but that's about as much as we can be hopeful for. Yeah, You mentioned uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. I, I want to read, Larry, something he said. Uh, he indicated that the administration had acted without sufficient explicit congressional authorization to undertake one of the most ambitious and expensive executive actions in the nation's history, violating separation of powers principles. He said the administration has sought to act unilaterally, leaving no meaningful role for Congress. I think, and this is a quote from Chief Justice Roberts, I think most casual observers would say, uh, if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. And, and what I really want to say about this, Larry, get your get you to weigh in on, is here is Biden using executive action. And we hear this a lot from folks that want Biden to, to just step up, to do bold things, whether it's around Voting Rights Act, you know, it could be reparations, uh, it could be the George Floyd and Policing Act, and here is student loan debt. He does that. He steps up. He does something bold. Now, a lot of folks said it wasn't enough, but now he's getting pretty much smacked down from the Supreme Court. What does this tell us about the usefulness of executive actions? You know, I think that's a really uh, that's a really great great question. And and let's just talk a little about executive orders, the history in terms of how former presidents have utilized it. And I think the example that pops in my head is Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamations on January first, eighteen sixty three. So. And then obviously there's, it's interesting in terms of how various presidents are critiqued. You know, when Donald Trump used an executive orders for various reasons, you didn't hear any much, much pushback, but certainly when um, would, um, Joe Biden and President Obama have, coincidentally, there is, there's more of a pushback on some of these issues. So I think that in terms of the historical context is really important. I think the other thing is really important, we need to really talk about this. This is about maintaining a racial caste system because this is about the wealth gap this is a, the reason why so many of my colleagues just highlight so many, you know, black people have to take out loans 
is because there's a major wealth gap. Black people suffer from redlining, not having access to capital. A lot of families that pay for their student, their, you know, their kids' tuition can pull from their pull money from their house. We know a lot of black folks, not not enough black folks, own their own home. I think also what's really interesting is there are some quotes from um, I think Roberts made today. He compared the student loan, taking out student loan money for student loans, he compared it to, to take a loan for business, which signifies to you he he's not really he's not really interested in making a legitimate argument about why we shouldn't do this. But the conservative court is going to do what the conservative court is supposed to do. And that's why it's really so important in terms of not only elections, but getting more folks like uh, Justice Kanjagi Brown-Jackson in on the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment and also highlights the importance of 2024. But like I said, we already you, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Reba. We, we already know how they're we already know how this is going to go. But the bottom line is, and my colleague talked about um, Justice Clarence Thomas, who understands was like to carry student debt and be black. <laughs> well, once again, well, hold up, well, Larry. <laughs> let, well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that. He understands what's like that he carries student debt and benefit from his blackness. Yes. Um, but he has turned his back years ago, again, you know, when it comes to other members of the black community. But he certainly wouldn't have been uh, Supreme Court justice if he was just some other got graduate from Yale University. Let's be clear. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that point about that's why elections matter. I get so frustrated when we are in midterms or we're local elections, any elections, and people say they're not going to vote or younger people, voters saying Biden hasn't done anything or the Democrats don't do anything. And then when President Biden steps out and tries to do something, he runs dead smack into either a conservative majority Congress, or in this case, a majority conservative court. So if you want something done in this country that's going to benefit middle class people, working class people, poor people, people of color, you may not love everything the Democrats do, but they are the only ticket in town. It is the only ticket in town because the reason we have those judges that are on the court that are even going to consider upholding this executive action is because Democrats put them on the court. And if you're looking for Republicans to put Democratic leaning, uh, liberal leaning justices on the court, you know, that's a fool's error because it's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, it just can't shout that from the rooftop enough that these elections matter. You don't have to love everything about Joe Biden. We don't love everything about any president. But he did appoint, as you just pointed out, Katanji Brown Jackson, the first African-American woman ever to sit on the court. She is there because of him. And we lost a Supreme Court justice under Mitch McConnell, when he would not give Biden, uh, not Biden, but Obama, the opportunity to make an appointment. So, folks, please wake up and understand you you don't have to love everything about Democrats. But if you want student loan debt relief, you want voting rights, you want police reform. Dems are at this moment the only ticket in town. Uh, Let's move to Adidas. Okay, I don't know where I've been living. And I guess I don't. I'm not a sneakerhead. But $2 billion, knee that's what Adidas was raking in from these sneakers, Yeezys that cost $200 to $600, $2 billion. Help us understand how Kanye West, who is a rapper, becomes a fashion mogul. And, and now not, but uh, a year ago. Two billion dollars in sneaker sales just from that 
line of, of sneakers alone, and Adidas walked away from it. Are you surprised? Because now that they've got all these shoes, they don't know what to do with them. Because if they try to sell them, the uh, you know the Jewish community is going to go ballistic. You know those anti-Semitic comments that he made on Instagram and Twitter that he doubled down on. Uh, they're not going to let them repurpose these shoes or pretty much do anything with them. So, you know, what does the company do in this situation? Well, I mean, I, I think shout out to, you know, all the organizers and activists that applied pressure to Adidas. Uh, you know, they sort of reluctantly walked away uh, from from Kanye, um, you know, after a series of just sort of anti-Semitic uh, rants. I mean, and, and they weren't the only ones. I think there were a number of folks that were in the business with Kanye, um, who had finally decided enough was enough, right? And uh, I think uh, Adidas has been trying to figure out, you know, how do they um, unwind this very significant investment, right? Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, Kanye is not walking away with nothing. Uh, you know, he's going to be walking away with, you know, a boatload uh, of cash, even as they're winding down the relationship with him, you know, and trying to uh, throw some more energy behind their relationship with Ivy Park. That's the Beyonce uh, inspired line uh, that, that they're that they're backing, you know, sales from that line, you know, are, are down. Um, but um, you know, we'll see. We'll see if, if anybody on their roster can can begin to fill that void. But, you know, um, just as elections have consequences, uh, so does, you know, uh, bad behavior. So does peddling and bigotry and white supremacy. Uh, and sometimes we see those consequences not applied uh, equally. And so we, we, we see some people who who you know get a blank check uh, to run up a tab uh, on the bigotry and, and, and other people not so much and so you know you know this was this was Kanye sort of making his bed and you know uh, you know Adidas you know sort of calling him out on it but not uh, on their own it was activists and organizers that applied pressure and 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 have have uh, really created a a business case you know for um, uh, you know big brands you know. Uh, decoupling themselves and getting out of business with people that are peddling and bigotry, particularly during times like this, where uh, so many issues um, uh, are so incredibly polarizing. Yeah, it's so interesting, Larry, because, you know, all these companies have morality clauses. So they get into these deals, these these major uh, product deals with celebrities, but yet they have these clauses that say that if you do anything that can damage the reputation of us, the big company, we have a right to terminate the agreement with you. But in the case of these companies that are making products like tennis shoes or sweatshirts or whatever they're making, they may find themselves, like in the case of Adidas, stuck with you know, millions and millions of units of this product that's been branded with this person's name that now has, you know, has this tainted reputation. What does that tell us about these relationships? You know, should companies be rethinking getting into bed with celebrities? Because after all, celebrities often will tell you, look, I'm not trying to be anybody's role model. You know, I'm just out here trying to sing or I'm out here trying to act or, you know, bounce a, a basketball or throw a football but yet they become bigger than life, and then these companies latch on to them, and they go and do what all of us do, which is say stupid stuff sometimes. Some of us, you know, it's more stupid than others. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, what does that say about these big brands trying to capitalize on folks' uh, platform? Listen, capitalism is going to make money. That's, that's it. money, power, respect. That's what they said, like, you know, the lots and little Kim said. 
That's what I need in life. So it really comes down to profit. And, you know, we talk about capitalism all the time and, you know, how it negatively impacts the black community. But these celebrities, they engage in these, they sign these these contracts with celebrities knowing that some of them have erratic behavior. I'll, I'll be kind. But <laughs> we talk about Kanye West in particular. Let's be clear. He was trafficking anti-blackness for a long time. So I don't feel sorry for Adidas. I mean, they were hot back in the day when DMC was out. And then, you know, they picked up again here with the last couple of years with Yeezys. But they they knew some of the comments he had made previously. They they got in bed with him anyway, and now they're paying for it. Um, and so I don't feel sorry for them. And you know whatever they do with the sneakers, I'm quite sure they'll figure it out. But once again, this it, it is. I think Ariva, it is. It does also highlight for uh, corporations who do you know sign contracts with you know um, radio, TV personalities, movie individuals, individuals, movie stars, etc. That there is a risk. And if that person does say things that said things that were controversial in the past, then don't expect them to stop. But that also sells sometimes. Yeah, no, nobody's really sorry for my. I guess I, I just wonder how they're learning anything uh, from this relationship. They had a deal with Kyrie Irving as well that has since been canceled because he also said some things yeah. that offended uh, the Jewish community. So. This isn't going to uh, end anytime soon, as you know. This is capitalism at its finest. And as long as there are folks out there with platforms that are willing to sign these deals, companies are willing to take a risk. And sometimes they make billions of dollars like they did initially with Kanye. And sometimes they have lots of tennis shoes that are probably going to end up in Ross. So anybody looking for some Yeezys, <laughs> check out your local <laughs> discount store. You're going to be able to find lots and lots of them. After news, sports, and traffic, we're going to talk about gender categories uh, at major award shows and also talk about Jimmy Carter, such a unique and uh, interesting individual. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. <laughs> Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. I am so happy today to be joined in this hour by or with, I'm here with Central Florida, University of Central Florida, Professor Dr. Larry Walker. He just penned a brilliant article recognizing the contributions of black women to this country. You can find it on the OrlandoSentinel.com website. And also in this hour, I'm joined by KBLA's own Dr. Nee Cortelet-Corte. He's KBLA's national political affairs analyst, and he's the host of a show that you can uh, watch and listen to every Sunday on KBLA. It's called uh, A More Perfect Union. So, guys, Chicago, folks are going to the polls. And you may be thinking, why should I care about the Chicago race, particularly if I don't live in Chicago? But everyone, uh, particularly African-Americans, should be thinking about this mayoral race because Lori Lightfoot, the incumbent black woman, first uh, openly gay black woman to be the mayor of Chicago is in the fight of her life. There are like eight or nine other candidates. And from all the on the ground information I'm getting and what I'm reading is it's likely that Lori Lightfoot hopefully will end up in a runoff with a challenger who says he's a Democrat. But he has been said, well, he said in 2009 he tends to lean more Republican. And he's kind of the law and order candidate. He wants 
more police. He wants police to be tougher on crime. He he wants to, in many ways, return to some of those uh, tactics. If you're a big fan of Chicago police, uh, Chicago PD, which I am, uh, some of the tactics that Chicago uh, Police Department has been known for, tactics which have led to the death of unarmed citizens and mostly unarmed black citizens. So, Nee, what are you thinking about this race and why is Lori Lightfoot, who was so celebrated just four years ago in the fight of her life? Well, you know, uh, first things first, let me just say it sounds like Groundhog's Day. Uh, Today is the last day of Black History Month. Uh, But based upon uh, the setup to your question, um, it made me think a little bit about the dynamics in the Los Angeles mayor's race, uh, where not too long ago, uh, uh, then-candidate Karen Bass was running against uh, then-candidate Rick Caruso, you know, who claimed to be a Republican, you know, after many years of doing some work with uh, the Republicans and being a registered Republican. And so, you know, I, I think that this is this is a, a flashpoint that we should pay attention to. Uh, you know, I think a number of, uh, of folks on the right uh, have paid attention, very close attention to the fact that there are a lot of major city mayors uh, that are now run by black folks. Um, uh, you know, folks that 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 uh, a lo- not too long ago didn't have a chance, you know, at winning uh, the mayor's race, you know, are running some of the nation's largest cities. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, that don't like that. Uh, you know, uh, Mayor Lightfoot has governed with, at times, a heavy hand uh, and has made a series of missteps from, you know, her management of the Chicago public school systems and, you know, this, the fight with uh, the teachers union. I think she uh, you know, emerged or bruised, uh, you know, from from that fight. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we, we can't forget about the effects of the pandemic. Uh, you know, there are a lot of folks that uh, thought that Mayor Lightfoot was very ha- heavy handed in terms of, of, of some of the rules and restrictions and the applications of those rules and restrictions uh, in, in Chicago. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, you know, our folks going to remove her because of all of those things? I mean, you know, Chicago is is uh, a better place from a public health standpoint when it comes to COVID uh, compared compared to where they were a year and a half ago. Um, and, you know, we've seen evidence that there are pockets of the city, you know, uh, where uh, the violence has plateaued, right? But is that enough to take uh, Mayor Lightfoot over the finish line? You know, I, I think a big part of this, Areva, is it's the it's the affect of our nation's leaders. It's how our leaders make us feel, um, uh, and uh, Lori Lightfoot's uh, style uh, may rub people the wrong way, may not win her um, many friends or maybe even many votes. But uh, we'll see what happens today in Chicago. Yeah, she's definitely not. The typical warm and fuzzy politician. She is uh, tough as nails, unlike our mayor here in Los Angeles, Karen Bass, who uh, is very tough, a strong leader, but also uh, has a very congenial personality. Uh, Larry, this is what's being uh, we know Miss Mayor Lightfoot has been attacked. She's been attacked from both the left and the right. And her challengers fit in a very familiar niche on the national democratic spectrum. Uh, This Paul Vallis, who's the guy that looks like he's going to maybe win or be at least in the top two, he's attracted support from more conservative voters, especially in heavily white wards on the northwest and southwest sides of Chicago, where many of the police officers, the firefighters, and other city workers live. He's also gained support from Democrats who voted for Lightfoot in 2019, but who are now saying that they're fed up 
with crime and are willing to vote for a more conservative candidate. We're seeing that happen in cities like Los Angeles, although Karen Bass did win. There were lots of traditional Democrats, those who identify as liberal Dems, who were willing to vote for the other candidate, Rick Caruso, because he, too, like this Paul Vallis, said, I'm the tough on crime guy. We know Eric Adams in New York is a ex-cop, and he also was, I'm the tough on crime guy. So when cities experience crime, why do we keep defaulting to the tough on crime guy? We've had the tough on crime guy. We had him all through the 90s. We've had him in the early 2000s. They ain't stopped no crime. But every time folks think that crime is up, they go back to the stop on the, the tough on crime guy rather than examining the root cause of crime and addressing those root causes. What are we getting wrong about this, Larry? Well, let me say the first thing that comes to mind is anti-blackness, <laughs> whether it's in Chicago, L.A., or, or wherever you may be with your geographic uh, location in the United States. And the, and the reason why I say that is this guy, Vallis, is just basically a wolf in sheep's, sheep's clothing. Let's just be clear. Well, he's a broke you know, Rick a, Caruso. <laughs> Rick minus <laughs> the billions of dollars. Okay? There you Let's go. Just call there you go. Minus the B, right? Yes. <laughs> it's really important. So. We go through these phases. So, listen, you're right about when we talk about crime. Like, so these you talked about, you described these individuals, traditional Democrats who, you know, voted for Mayor Lightfoot a couple years ago and then want to vote for for this gentleman. And this is really comes down to, like I said, there are a lot of people in America who don't care about they don't care about solving crime. They just want they, they want it. They want to see homeless people. They want to see anything that might make them feel uncomfortable or get in the way of them, uh, you know, people drive, you know, it's nothing wrong with driving an expensive car, but anything that is not centered and centered in their own lived experience, they don't care about it. And I think that that's one of the myths about America is that we always conversation about Americans were always, you know, looking out for each other. But the bottom line is that's not really true. And that those, these individuals you're describing that were both for this, this both for this candidate, this tough on crime thing, we know it doesn't work. Crime is rooted in housing discrimination, limited economic capital, um, not having access to mental health or um, or physicians and nurses, like I said, psychologists, et cetera. And but we don't want to have and we don't want to have those conversations. It's easy for people to lock up black and brown folks, be done with them for 10 to 15, 20 years. And then, you know, why do I care? But the last thing I want to point I want to make is that the country is now it will be majority minority within over the next couple of decades, I think 2042, whatever it is. We have to invest in minoritized communities to ensure this United States maintains an economic superpower. But folks don't see that. And then we'll we'll feel the repercussions over the next several years. And when we come forward, Jimmy Carter, a white politician from the South who supported segregation, becomes the darling of black Democratic voters. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with Dr. Larry Walker from the University of Central Florida and KBLA's own Dr. Nee Corte. So let me ask you this, uh, Nee. Jimmy Carter. Is he an example of how 
a, a racist person, a segregationist who has supported segregation and segregation laws can have a complete transformation. Should we be looking to former President Jimmy Carter? You know, God bless him. He's he's uh, on in hospice. Uh, his family has brought him home. He's refused any additional cancer treatment. So we know that the city, the city, the state, the nation is in prayer for him and his family. But there are now lots of articles that have been written about him and books and people are starting to talk about him more. And they're saying, look, this guy was a hardcore racist, but he turned it around and became a champion for black folks. And in fact, even supported Obama and called out white folks who uh, he said were, you know, basically discriminating against Obama when he was running for president simply because he was a black man. How are you feeling about Jimmy Carter in this moment? I think there's so much for us to learn from uh, the former president and his journey. We so often talk about the hard work of changing hearts and minds. And it's not lost on me that uh, Jimmy Carter uh, is an example of what that can look like over the course of a lifetime. He's had 98 years uh, with us uh, on the planet. And uh, it feels like he is maximizing every single minute um, and not just only, not just in deeds, um, uh, both during his presidency and following his presidency, right? But, you know, in, in articulating his evolution in owning the fact that, you know, once upon a time, you know, he was an enabler of white supremacy. He was an enabler of uh, uh, the segregationists, right? And when he assumed positions of power and influence and authority, at some point he decided to do it differently. Uh, and he didn't just decide by himself. There were black folks uh, in his life uh, that, you know, weren't like the character Stephen uh, from Django, uh, but uh, you know, were 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 folks uh, that believed uh, in black humanity, that believed in our equality, and you know, and shared their lived experience with him, and that that had an effect on him over time. And so it's a reminder that, you know, we shouldn't give up on white folks, you know, who may be peddling in white supremacy and bigotry. Um, you know, it's a reminder that restorative justice is possible. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, you know, in some grand ways and subtle ways, uh, at some point, uh, the former president recommitted himself uh, to uh, uh, to addressing, uh, you know, his um, uh, former beliefs, right? And but putting some action behind it. A lot of people that say, "Oh, I've changed my heart," right? You know, but we don't see the action behind it. We don't see the uh, the uh, the the efforts, the continued efforts. And and with him, we have seen that. And so, you know, uh, it is a um, it's a story uh, that. Uh, uh, will be told for many generations, uh, and especially at a time like this. This is the last day of Black History Month. You know, but at KBLA, you know, we celebrate Black History 365, right? And, and, and it's important, you know, that we also, while we're lifting up Black excellence, that we're lifting up allies in the struggle, people who have evolved, uh, people have, have, who have recognized, you know, their, their terrible ways and have have decided to do it differently. Yeah, one thing that struck me, uh, me and Larry, about this story is that as a kid, Jimmy Carter would spend the night with a black family uh, that worked on the Carter land. And there was a black woman named Rachel, who was the wife of, of a male worker. 
and she taught him a lot. And I think what that says is one of our problems in this country is we live in such segregated communities that oftentimes white folks don't have an opportunity to be around black families and vice versa. But more importantly, white folks having an opportunity to be around black families and realize that we want the same things that they want for our children, that, that we want safe communities, that we want our kids to get a good education, that we want to have a, you know a nice house. We want to drive a nice car. We want a good job. And Jimmy Carter had a chance to see that in this black family and you know she wasn't his nanny in the sense of the help or one of those movies but this was a black woman Rachel that had a profound impact on him and his understanding of black people and although he may have strayed from that as he supported these segregation laws and and was a segregationist himself in many ways Larry what do you think about how he was in some ways indoctrinated as a kid does that tell us about what we need to do if we really want to address racism in this country about our neighborhoods and how we go to church and how we uh, go to school, all of these little silos, uh, it's creating and perpetuating the problem. And so we we live in it, as you said, we live in a segregated society and as segregated as we did any other point in U.S. history, you talked about living those silos. But I think one of the points I'm to highlight is that Black folks just want to live. So a lot of the, we talk about issues related to segregation is, you know, particularly the interaction between white and black folks is that black folks are just trying to raise their families. Like you said, um, you know, pay their taxes, go on vacation. And a lot of times when they even, well, you know, sometimes, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) you know, when let's talk about reparations in Cali, but uh, you know, five million dollars, you know, Black folks, let's remember when they move into these white communities, and we've seen this over and over and over again. Like we talk about, this importance of integrating. You know, historically, there's always pushback. You know, whether it's someone calling the police for you, or playing loud music, or you know, putting all kinds of crazy things on on your lawn, or or threatening your kids. Black folks are just trying to live. So even when we try to, like I said, integrate, there's always that pushback, and a lot of that is because. There are a lot of white people in this country, not all, who don't see our humanity mm-hmm. and don't see us, don't even see us as Americans. It would be here, you know, for some of our families been here for generations. And we have to dispel those myths. A couple of really quick points I want to make about um, uh, former President Carter. His legacy as a one-term president will be his humanitarian work. So we're talking about the Carter Center. Um, I also want to highlight when he was president, it's really important, 1979, he elevated the department to the U.S. Department, the U.S. Department of Edu- Education, to a cabinet level position. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Because we know, as as Black folks, how important education funding at the federal level has been in terms of the McNair Scholars Program, Pell Grants, all these other programs that come out of the U.S. Department of Education that have benefited Black folks. So his legacy is essentially, I think, in my opinion, elevating that to a cabinet level position and all his work through the Carter Center, et cetera. Yeah, and the some by some accounts he lost. The reason he is that one-term president that Larry talked about is because of his support of black folks and Ronald Reagan running a campaign with dog whistle racism, appealing to white folks and saying, "Look, that's the guy that's with them over there." Uh, what do you think of that? Do you think he would have been a two-term president if he had been more centrist? Had he been less? pro you know anti-discrimination had he not had this transformation and made you know and had it in such a public way i don't think we would be celebrating the same jimmy carter if he had decided to do it any differently um and i think what's really interesting in this moment uh there have been a number of folks that have 
have sort of compared uh, President Biden to former President Jimmy Carter. Uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Certainly, uh, there's no comparison in terms of the strength of the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, our economy, you know, has never been stronger. Unemployment has never been uh, uh, lo lower. Um, and so certainly uh, there's no comparison in terms of the state of our economy. But in terms of the state of our union, in terms of race relations, you know, uh, the, the state of our union in terms of just, uh, you know, the the politic the the political, the polarization uh, uh, in our politics, uh, you know, uh, there's something there. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, America, you know, during the Carter years had a hunger for more moral leadership. Remember, we were coming off of, uh, you know, the scandal of, of Richard Nixon. Um, uh, and I think the country was still healing from that. Um, I think the country right now still has a hunger uh, for moral leadership. And the question is, uh, moral leadership uh, uh, towards which worldview um, will be the kind of moral leadership that followers of Trump and DeSantis are looking for, which some of us wouldn't even call moral leadership uh, at all, or is it going to be the kind of moral leadership that's going to stand up to the bigots uh, and it's going to protect Black history and uh, you know protect books from being banned and you know uh, allow for Black folks' humanity to uh, 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 to be firmly in place. Uh, we shall see as we're gearing up for the 2024 election. Well, it's a great way to close because we know pri uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris just celebrated Black History Month in the White House on Monday. And Vice President Harris is celebrating emerging leaders at the vice president's mansion today. Uh, again, emerging black leaders as a way to close out Black History Month. And Joe Biden continues to make a commitment to black History and Black Leaders. Thank you so much, Nick Cordele Corte and Professor Larry Walker. Always a pleasure to have both of you on. After news, sports, and traffic, we're going all in on reparations. And San Francisco says they want to give a $5 million check to every black person in San Francisco. We're going to see what my experts have to say about that. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Ma Shipping and prices less than big box retailers. And right now, save 50% off any order during Blindster's extended President's Day sale. Hurry, sale ends March 1st. Blindster.com. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. The Lakers will reevaluate LeBron James' right foot injury in two weeks. No update is expected until at least March 7th. After tonight's game in Memphis, LeBron will miss the next five games. Depending on how he responds to treatment, LeBron won't be available until the March 20th. 12th game against New York. Sources close to the Lakers are concerned that LeBron could be out much longer. LeBron hurt his right foot on a drive to the basket late in the third quarter of Sunday's win at Dallas. The Clippers are at home tonight against Minnesota. The Clippers need a win. They're two and four in their last six games. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron from Original Taco Pete's here, inviting you to our newest location at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw for Taco Tuesday only 175 call 323-348-4441 to order this is a rather bold pronouncement but we think we can back it up, back it up. Back it up. if you come across a radio frequency anywhere putting more variety and more diversity on the air than KBLA Talk 1580 we sure would like to hear about your discovery you got to have vision you can search we are confident that you won't find more shows covering more topics 
hosted by a more diverse and inclusive lineup of talkers than the squad we have assembled here at KBLA Talk 1580. This is the time, brothers. This is the time. We've got something for everybody. That's right. Health and healing, history and humor, issues and events, empowerment and entertainment, all in one station. What's really going on? Free enterprise, you dig? KBLA Talk 1580. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got a lot to talk about. King Kong ain't got on me, on me, on me. Members of the Supreme Court's conservative majority seem deeply skeptical today of the legality of the Biden administration's plan to wipe out more than $400 billion in student debt because of the coronavirus pandemic. Conservatives argue that Biden doesn't have the authority to grant such broad forgiveness (laughs) while Democrats are arguing that the president absolutely does have the authority to uh, make student loan debts uh, relief a top priority and to help those students who are literally being crippled by student loan debt. Jimmy Carter, a white politician from the South who once supported segregationist policies, eventually won the enduring support of black voters. A New York Times report says that it was that support and commitment to ending discrimination that caused him to lose his bid for a second term to Ronald Reagan in 1980. Chicago voters go to the polls today to elect a new mayor. Among the front runners in the race is 69-year-old Paul Vallis, a Democrat with more conservative views on crime and education. He says he will increase the police force and he's portrayed Chicago as being a state a city that's in a state of disarray. Polls suggest that incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot, whose rivals have positioned themselves to both her political left and right, is in a tight contest for one of these spots. Rupert Murdoch admitted that some Fox TV hosts pushed election falsehoods. The chairman of Fox News' parent company also said that he wished the network had done more to challenge false claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen in a deposition testimony he gave tied to Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. And in Hollywood news, celebrities are debating whether major awards whether the categories should eliminate uh, gender categories. Nominees at the Screen Actors Guild Awards in L.A. were split on combining award shows categories for Best Actor and Best Actress. Now, female nominees in particular expressed concern that the idea of a single prize would put men at a distinct advantage because of the richer and more numerous roles available to them. And in presidential news, President Obama has launched a leadership network named the Change Collective. He wants to focus on local civic engagement. The former president says he hopes the initiative will develop, connect, and elevate change makers across the country. Jackson, Mississippi will be among the first sites of the new leadership program. Obama will launch this program and build a network of young leaders from a range of regions, identities, backgrounds, and political persuasions. His intent is to help bridge the intense polarization that is gripping our politics today. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and this is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, we go all in on the question of reparations. I'm going to be joined in this hour by San Francisco uh, 
executive director of their Human Rights Division, Dr. Cheryl Davis, and also political commentator Melanie Collette. I don't know if you caught the news yesterday, but San Francisco made a, a splash when its reparation advisory committee explained that it came up with the number of $5 million, that's the number it says that each African-American, assuming you meet certain criteria, in San Francisco should receive. The Reparations Advisory Committee unveiled its recommendations in January, arguing that the city owed compensation to black residents for decades of discrimination. The committee's chair, consultant Eric McDonald, says the $5 million number came as a result of a journey rather than a math formula. When we come forward, we're going to talk to Dr. Davis and Melanie about reparations as a whole. Is there widespread support for it? And $5 million, is it likely to get passed by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors? And might other cities follow the lead of San Francisco when we come forward? KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. And a member FDIC. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. If you've not already done so, make sure you download the KBLA app. You can watch and listen to Ariva Martin in real time and all of the shows on KBLA by downloading the app. You can watch anywhere in the world. And Ariva Martin in real time also is a podcast. So if you miss the broadcast from 4 to 6 every day, you can check out the podcast everywhere podcasts are uh, found. Uh, In this hour, we're talking about reparations and specifically this recent report out of San Francisco that its uh, reparations advisory committee has come up with this determination that African-Americans in San Francisco that were born in the city during a a certain time period that and those that have lived in the city for a certain amount of time. Uh, should receive $5 million apiece in reparations. Now, slavery was never legal in San Francisco, but reparations activists say the city imposed decades of racist policies that economically harmed black residents. Uh, The executive director or the the head of this reparations advisory committee also said uh, there wasn't a math formula used in getting to the $5 million number. He says it was a journey for the committee towards what could represent a significant enough investment in families to put them on the path to economic well-being, growth, and vitality that chattel slavery and all the policies that flowed from it destroyed. Uh, I want to bring my guests on. First, Dr. Cheryl Davis. She's executive director of the Human Rights Division in San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad you're here. Uh, And also I want to bring on Melanie Collette. Melanie is a political commentator. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you for having me. Cheryl, I want to start with you. Let's, let's, Let's take a step back. And can you just give us the most basic definition of reparations and then explain 
what the committee in San Francisco, uh, what their process was and how they got to the $5 million number. We know that uh, the lead of that committee says it was a journey. But help us understand who's qualifying or may qualify because y'all may be getting a bunch of folks trying to get on an airplane and fly to San Francisco trying to get that $5 million check. And that's not going to be how it works. So give us a little uh, education on what you guys have been doing in San Francisco around reparations. Yeah. So um, the committee was launched. The president at the time of the Board of Supervisors, the one black person on the Board of Supervisors for the city, San Francisco's a city and county, um, created this body, legislated it, 15 member body, went through a process. And this body is different than a lot of other ones where it's focused on lived experience. And so there's somebody who was formerly homeless, someone who um, has been involved in um, uh, pub lived in public housing, right? So they've got all these things that are connected or associated with the experience of black folks in San Francisco. Um, it's funny you say that about like who qualifies because I've been in San Francisco for almost 30 years and I am not going to qualify. Somebody sent me a thing, talk, sent me a direct message the other day talking about very self-serving that you proposed 5 million. First off, I didn't propose it. And second off, it's not self-serving. I can't get money because it's about a very specific time period in San Francisco. It's about when some of the, the most kind of atrocious redevelopment agency happenings were, were going on. And so folks who lived here during the time of um, the most gentrification that we saw during that period of time. And so during the 50s, 60s is when we saw a lot of black folks being pushed out of their housing. And so that was something that they wanted to target and think about in terms of that timeline. Other things that are relevant to that are um, having been black for more than a year. So also this <laughs> idea that folks don't just all of a sudden realize and remember that they have, that they are a descendant of slaves or that they are black, but that you have to have had it for X amount of years, 10 years, I believe is where they landed with that. Um, there's also these other proxies that we've used as you know, Prop 209 in California. Like we haven't always been able to talk about um, doing something for folks because they were black, mm -hmm. but we know that um, the education system, incarceration, other things that have been proxy for um, how Black people haven't had access to resources and money. So those are other things that are listed in there. And then I would say this has been the hardest part in terms of justifying the $5 million in that conversation. And uh, the neighborhood where, for folks who are familiar with San Francisco, where the painted ladies, the iconic um, houses that are in San Francisco that are on the postcards, and some folks refer to it as the place where the um, full house house is in San Francisco. If somebody, that, that neighborhood around there and where those houses were, was black, pre-redevelopment agency. And if we were going to, in the name of reparations, in the name of repair, in the name of getting people back to where they would have been if the harm hadn't been done, if we were going to give people the opportunity to purchase the homes that they were pushed out of or the homes that were demolished and not rebuilt, mm -hmm. um, those homes are anywhere between three and $4 million in those neighborhoods where Black folks were moved from. So just starting with purchasing one of the existing homes, not to mention if you were going to try and get a lot and rebuild it. So in the name of reparations, just getting enough money to purchase the home is already a huge piece of um, the formula if we are talking about the, the, the cost to actually begin to do repair. It has nothing to do with um, 
mental health or education or even just paying your bills every day. Let me ask you this. One of the criteria that I saw, Cheryl, was that if you were personally or the direct descendant of someone incarcerated by the failed war on drugs. So if so, that could be a white person, right? That could be a Latino person. That could be an Asian person. Don't have to be a black person that was uh, directly or a descendant of someone incarcerated by the war on drugs. Does that then make that person, despite them not being black, would they then be eligible? So that fir- that's the first go round of that list. And what's going to happen is that you're going to have to be one thing and something else, right? And so the one thing that everybody's going to need to do is be Black. But I think we are also still navigating Prop 209. And once this goes to the Board of Supervisors, when they get ready to vote on it, um, the city attorney's office is going to tell them what is actually something that they can move forward without the city being worried about being sued. So help us understand what's going to happen next. So the advisory committee has made the recommendation and is going to go to your board of supervisors and how many people sit on your board? So this is the draft. They'll do a March 14th. There'll be a hearing for the supervisors, the board of supervisors. There are 11 um, supervisors representing 11 districts around the, the city. And that, Draft recommendations will go before that body on March 14th. Um, The supervisors will talk about like whether they accept, whether they want them to be modified. Then the committee will spend the next few months tweaking and doing more research and fine tuning the recommendations and fine tuning the eligibility and then come back in June to present to the board. And then at that point, the board will make a decision about like how to move this um, document for. So do you anticipate in March or June, is there going to be a vote up or down by the supervisors? When would that vote happen? The The final vote up or down would be um, in June. Okay. And how many members of that 11 member body would have to vote yes for the approval of the 5 million? So in order for it to be, you know, veto proof from the mayor, they would need eight votes. Um, six votes gets it passed out of the 11, but then it would not, um, you know, the mayor could potentially come back and say, I want it to be changed or I'm not going to approve it because of X, Y, and Z. I think the other challenge is around like, where does the money come from? Because clearly, um, depending on how many people they're going to, um, pay out, like, is this, um, X amount every year, or is it trying to hit all the people that qualify in one year? So a lot of that will still have to be fine tuned over the next few months. All right, Melanie, I want to bring you into this conversation. I'm sure you've been tracking what's happening in San Francisco. What was your initial reaction when you saw the preliminary uh, recommendations from this task force, this committee, for $5 million for reparations? I have to tell you, as someone who who works on public policy for a living, I was first stunned by the, we didn't use math, we used a journey. I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, my master's is in public administration. And I'm like, I know we did not, I I didn't do any public policy projects on on a journey when I was dealing with numbers. I was like so perplexed by that. And then the other thing I was thinking is, where is all this money going to come from? Are they going to deduct if you also were the beneficiary of some public monies in the past, public housing, welfare, all of the other things? Like, will the, like, will the 
because you, you, you I, I mean, you got to balance it out, right? So you're benefiting from, you know, you're getting paid back, but then, I, you know, there's a narrative and a thought that the reason why black people are poor is, um, you know, why they have to be on, some have to be on welfare and some, you know, whatever the situation is, use public services. That part of that is due to racism. So will that amount of money be deducted? Also, will you be able to ever uh, use those services again? Like if you're $5 million up, like I feel like we're even and we should be even for a minute. Like, does that mean that everybody in your family but for, you know, however long, you should be good to go if you get $5 million. So should you be able to get student loans? Should you be, uh, have any kinds of advantages for starting a business as, as a minority if you get this $5 million? Um, you know, all of the things that come with that, I, I mean, I... It was meant when I was reading about it from a pot, just strictly from a, a mm -hmm, practical mm -hmm. policy perspective, it was making my head spin. I have all kinds of questions. Will this come with some required financial literacy? There's a pretty well-known um, statistic about people who win the lottery, for example, mm -hmm. typically end up broke because they don't know how to manage their money properly. Will that be um, a requirement? Will people who are already wealthy uh, qualify for that? Or will wealthy Black people in San Francisco who are already perhaps millionaires or even thousandaires, will they right. qualify right. for that $5 million? You raised some I, good... I mean, so These are excellent <laughs> questions, Melanie. And in full disclosure, everyone knows that watches this show or watches me on TV know I am a reparations uh, avid supporter. I'm actually also a civil rights lawyer and I'm actually representing some families in Palm Springs, over 6,000 families uh, who are seeking reparations from the city of Palm Springs. So I, I fully and wholeheartedly support reparations from a moral standpoint and a legal standpoint. And I did get concerned like Melanie Sherl when I read that the the head of the committee said we didn't use math we used a journey and i'm very concerned that that statement and that process could harm other reparations actions which are taking place as you know all over the country from palm springs the case i'm involved in to detroit to uh sacramento you know, Boston, Massachusetts, St. Louis, Missouri, Memphis, Tennessee, there are reparations commissions and committees that have been formed all over this country. Does that do harm to our efforts if we come forth with what some are going to say, well, it's a journey. You know, you just pulled it out your pocket, you pulled it out your hat, you pulled it out your butt, you pulled it out of somewhere, and it's not scientific. Right. Does, does that concern you, Cheryl? So I, I think, and, you know, I would, I would say I think, Hopefully he was taken out of context or maybe misunderstood what the question was because, you know, we are in the place right now we're working with Stanford um, Law School we're also working with um, uh, a researcher to actually document that but we are starting from this place of you know, the average house in San Francisco to even purchase a condo in San Francisco, an 800 square foot condo is over a million dollars. So again, focusing on the idea and notion of reparations, starting from just getting housed, that first space is already at a $2 million 
out the door if we're talking about a house that has more than uh, one bedroom in it. Mm -hmm. So that's one place. The second place is around if we're talking about um, education, if we're talking about health, we're talking about, so there are numbers that go with that. And there are, there is a very specific piece that outlines, right? This is what we know was lost in terms of if we had to replace in the name of reparations, if we were today going to take a family that was displaced during that era, during that time, what that looks like. And to the point of, you know, we've had this conversation back and forth around financial literacy or financial coaching and what that looks like. And there's been a lot of debate about what that looks like for, for the community by and large and what we require of folks, but that ultimately we are saying to fill the gap, right? Like this is not even meant to fill the gap, right? Like there's a whole other piece of that. This is about repairing the harm that was lost. We know in San Francisco um, that there were 10,000 folks that were displaced during redevelopment era. Mm -hmm. Of those 10,000, 8,000 plus of them were black. Mm -hmm. And we also know that half of them never came back to the city because they couldn't afford to do it. And so what would it take to get those folks to come back to the city? And then also, what is the harm that was done to the folks that were displaced? So right. there is, there are numbers to it. And, and unfortunately, he didn't get the chance or maybe there was confusion to communicate those. Well, first of all, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and I want to, you know, I hope those numbers get out and get out quickly, because I think those folks who are supportive of reparations want to feel like they have you know, some numbers, some statistics, some data, something to support uh, the efforts, because as you said, $5 million sounds like a big number, but those of us that live in California know that $5 million in, in places like Silicon Valley and San Francisco and some places in Los Angeles won't even buy you a home, uh, won't buy in some of these communities, even a, just a basic, you know, family home, three bedroom, two bathroom family home, unfortunately, because the cost of real estate is so high. So it sounds large and people are responding, I think, to the largeness of, of that number. Uh, but when you start getting into those numbers and showing what the cost of real estate is and showing what the cost of, you know, what it costs for education and et cetera, uh, and the generational wealth that has been lost by black folks as a result of racist policies, that number doesn't sound so large at all. And in fact, it's probably an inadequate, a woefully inadequate number. But let me address something you said, Melanie, about the financial coaching. White folks get to spend their money however they want to spend it. Now, I'm all in favor of financial literacy. I'm all in favor of folks being responsible with their money. But I am not in favor of the oppressor telling the oppressed what to do with the money. If you took my money, if you took my property, and I'm asking you to give it back to me, what I do with it when you give it back to me is not your business. If I want to go to Vegas and put it all in a slot machine on one day, that is my business. If I want to buy a house or invest in a business, that is my business. The oppressor doesn't get to tell the oppressed, i.e. us black folks, what to do with our money. Now, of course, we want to make financial literacy available for folks. We want to make, you know, supportive coaching. All of that should be available, but it should not be mandatory and it should not be tied to the money. Because when white folks took our stuff, they got to do whatever the hell they wanted to do with our stuff. So okay. let's not okay. cause black folks to be given requirements and regulations and, you know, that other folks don't have. Go ahead, Melanie, jump in. You got 30 seconds. Then we got to talk to news, traffic and sports. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to give you more on the other side, uh, Melanie, okay. but go ahead. Okay. I, I, 
I get what you're saying, but it is for their benefit. And I, I just don't, I, as someone who taught financial literacy on a high school level for 12 years, I don't consider the financial strategies to be oppressive. It is a financial education is actually the key to financial success and generational wealth. If kids start when they're 18 to understand the basics. Of hold, hold that thought for me, Melanie. I'm a, I, I swear I'm going to let you uh, finish your thought on the other side at the news sports and traffic stay with us kbla talk 1580 i'm also taking your calls in this hour give us a call 1-800-920-1580 arriva time is the right time more of arriva martin in real time when we come forward Forward. rp you're listening to arriva martin in real time on kbla talk 1580 i'm back and we are all in today on reparations after that blockbusting report comes out or came out yesterday about San Francisco and its advisory reparations committee recommendation of $5 million for reparations for African-Americans in the city of San Francisco. And joining me in this hour is Dr. Cheryl Davis. She's the executive director of the Human Rights Division in San Francisco and Melanie Collette. She's a political commentator. I'm also taking your calls in this hour and your comments on YouTube. You have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-920-1580. Fatima posted a comment on our YouTube page, and Fatima, you are so right. She said, we wouldn't be here if they had simply given us the damn 40 acres and the mule. So we absolutely know we would not be here. And I want to take a call from Mike. Mike is calling in from Los Angeles. You're on the air, Mike. How are you doing? This is a real interesting conversation here. I was just uh, thinking, you know, even if you uh, you got $5 million, you bought a million-dollar house, you'd have to be paying $1,000 a month just for taxes on that house. And if it was a $2 million house, you'd be paying $2,000 a month just on the taxes alone on the house. You haven't gotten to utilities or repairs or anything. And if you get $5 million, are you going to have to pay taxes on that $5 million when you get it? I mean, how, how are they working that now? That's a great question, Mike, and that came up with the uh, money that the family, Bruce's Beach, the uh, descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce, who got back the four parcels of beachfront land in Manhattan Beach, California, and they actually had to do something at the state legislative uh, level in order to avoid that money from being uh, taxed in a way that it typically would be. But, uh, Melanie, this is where you can jump back in. This is your financial literacy. So you got $5 million. Mike is worried. You buy a million-dollar house, you got property taxes uh, and other expenses associated with that. Help us understand how you can spend that $5 million and be do so if you choose to. Because, again, I'm all for whatever you want to do with your money, you do with it. But go ahead, Melanie. You want to talk about financial I mean, literacy. Well, listen, it, it, if that is going to be – I have a whole lot of problems with this I'll, for a number of reasons. Like, okay, so when we say if they had gave us that money – like they that there's not like a mystery they like they are taxpayers that 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 money is coming from unless you're going to track down descendants of slave owners and make those families pay like if that's the philosophy but also do you like do you get a credit if your white family died during the civil rights movement defending our rights died during slavery defending our rights. There are white people, you know, anytime that you, uh, you make policy that 
is race centered, it is going to be problematic be because of our history. And I just don't see how you do it in a, in, a, in a way that is fair. I mean, do you make these these properties tax free for the rest of their lives? And, and so you have these reparations properties that are not obligated to pay the basic taxes that the that everyone else has to pay to go towards schools and public roads and and, and those kinds of things like how how do you square that circle and, and those things still have to be paid for which is going to mean that white counterparts are going to have to pay more in order to make up for that gap is is that fair do people, do Black people care that, well, do Black people who are pro-reparations care about the fairness? Or is the acting presumption is that all white people are guilty and so they should all pay? And we just know that that is not true. Okay, Melanie, let me have uh, Cheryl jump in. Go ahead, Cheryl, respond to what Melanie, uh, she's posed this question. Is the presumption that all white folks are, are responsible and do we care about fairness? We being black people who, blacks and whites who are pro reparations. Yeah, I mean, I think fair is a um, is not the right question to ask here because I think that in terms of because if you're going to talk about fair with regards to white people today, we have to talk about what was fair. And I think the the caller um, or the the question in the chat was more about the they wasn't about the people today. If they the folks who had enslaved and then released the slaves had given, if the government had followed through on their 40 acres and a mule after the Civil War, then she's saying we wouldn't be in this position today, not the folks that lived today. And what's not fair is that there were promises made and that throughout society, throughout time, whether it's politicians, whether it is Wells Fargo Bank, whether it is um, the other banks that have profited, we have a slave closure, slavery disclosure ordinance here in San Francisco where folks were supposed to volunteer and let us know if they made money off of the slave trade and Bank of America, Wells Fargo, all of these banks that many of us continue to give our money to that's making interest or charging fees off of us continue to make that money. And that's not necessarily fair, right? Like that the insurance companies, all of these things have happened and they have continued to profit. And we as a society have continued to profit and benefit from that. That is not fair. And so as we have this conversation, as we unpack it, like it can't be one side has to be fair and the other side does not. We have all and society as a whole has continued to benefit from white supremacist culture. And to, to say, well, I wasn't born back then. I wasn't born back then either, but I have still feeling the impact. And, and if anybody gets to go visit Southern spaces, there's still Jim Crow, whether there are signs up or not, there's still bias, there's still discrimination. San Francisco isn't even looking at it in terms of um, they're not even looking at it in terms of slavery. We're looking at it in terms of real tangible to be able to say, right, like the housing, the people that were displaced, folks that lost their businesses. There are 900 black businesses that were forced out. Right. Like that's a real tangible thing. And it's not fair. But the government has never apologized, has never gone back. And nobody has come back and said, let's fix the wrong that was done, but, not by our ancestors, but by our policy. Hold on a but second, the, Melanie. Right, hold on a second, the, Melanie. The, I'm going to let you respond. I got to take a call from James. James is calling in. You're on the air, James. Good evening, ladies. How are you doing? Fantastic. Go ahead, James. What's your question or comment? Well, my comment is that even though reparations sound good, who are we going to give it to? Because we're so intertwined now with 
Caribbean Afros, African Afros, European Afros, uh, those who came from uh, the islands uh, in the South Pacific. We don't know who's who, who's going to get the money. And then furthermore, they're not going to give us that kind of money because some of us will use it to build political wealth and also have more monetary wealth. We would kill building on it, and they can't allow us to become equal next to them. That's bottom line. All right, thanks for your comment, James. Go ahead, Melanie. You wanted to respond to what Cheryl said. The problem that I have is that I I, I feel like, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, that the they that is always referred to seems to be this mystery entity that does not contain real people, real taxpayers, who, who, when we're talking about tangible assets, we're talking about their tangible money being taken away from them for something that they did not do, that they were not responsible for. So, and I just don't see how that is right. I don't think that you can write the evils of redlining, bias, all of those things that still even go on today. I don't think you can write that by punishing people who are innocent. But wait a minute, Melanie, Melanie, hold on a second. Melanie, Melanie, hold on a second. First of all, let's, let's depersonalize this. The they that Cheryl is talking about is the system of the U.S. government. It's not an individual. We're not talking about John or Bob or Hank or, you know, uh, Greg. We're talking about a system. Systemic racism looks at systems that have oppressed people of color. And so when we use the word they, it's just a colloquial term for the system of government. So that's who the they are. Uh, so we don't have I, I to talk, we don't have to talk about that. individuals. So so when we talk about a system of government, the government is an inanimate object. So we're not punishing any individual. We're talking about these systems. When we come forward, though, I want to get both of your take on a white guy. University of Richmond recently removed the name of T.C. Williams, who was a benefactor for uh, the law school in Richmond, Virginia. And they wanted to they removed the name because the guy owned slaves in the 19th century. Now, his descendant says, look, if you want to take my great great grandfather's name off your building because he owned slaves, give us back the money that he donated to the institution. I want to get your take on that when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. He's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Okay, Dr. Davis, what do you think of this descendant of T.C. Williams saying, look, if you don't want my great-great-grandfather's name on your law school because you said he owned slaves and some of the money he donated to this university is from slave trade, then give us back our money. Now, he's saying that, I don't know, it's like 25 thousand dollars or so that was donated he's saying it's worth billions of dollars today do you think this argument is is valid is this reverse reparations i mean i will say and this i'm saying in my own personal volition i think that i've really struggled with um the removing of monuments and the changing of names and doing all of that because first and foremost 
Um, in a lot of these instances, it costs money to do that. And it's money that we're using to make those changes that could just as easily go towards the folks that we want to support. That's one. Second, I, I often worry um, as a former educator, um, when we do some of this erasing, what that means for education or teaching or helping people remember who folks are. And I don't think they have to be celebrated, but it does become a teachable moment. And that's a really hard one, right? Like, I think, you know, that is a really hard one to talk about, like, what is the thing that you want to do or what's the point? Like, if it costs you $25,000 to rename or if it's just a plaque, like, I get that. But I think the message is... Um, what does that look like? We're we're having conversations here in San Francisco about like the naming of schools and buildings and what that looks like, because I, I often say right now today, a lot of the things that we're celebrating 100 years from now may not be a good thing. And somebody <laughs> might say, oh, she was advocating for reparations. Don't put her name on the building. Mm -hmm. Right. Like so those things that it is hard to look at what happened in that sense to judge people, individuals as individuals with today's lens. But I do think that there are some things that I think we always will agree that it was not right to enslave people, to beat people, to um, to get free labor. Um, but in terms of some of these things, I, I think we meet, miss a teachable moment. I think we waste money in some but ways. But do you think the university owes him the money? That's the question. Oh, He's no. saying, if you don't no. want my name on your building, and that was the agreement that I give you the money and you name the building after me, and now in this era where it's no longer cool to have a building named after a white guy that owns slaves, if you don't want my name, give me my money. So, Cheryl, you say, no, it's it's he shouldn't get the money back. What do you say, Melanie? Should this T.C. Williams uh, descendant get the money back that his great great grandfather, Thomas C. Williams, uh, gave to the Richmond College? I say, heck, yeah. Give him his money back. Absolutely. Give him every dime back. I, I, I mean, and, and again, I'm, I mean, to the, to the good doctor's point, it, it's it's ridiculous to to do something like that. A lot of times, that stuff costs money. They could use that money uh, if if they want to, you know, do good. They could use that money to provide scholarships for um, people from socio socio uh, economically depressed backgrounds who who have the chops. Uh, to make it into that college instead of spending that money, getting rid of that dude's name all over the building, in my opinion. So the University and, and if of you want to teach about that history, teach about teach about the history. Well, the University of Richmond says it reserves the right to remove the name of a person who directly engaged in the trafficking or enslavement of others or someone who openly advocated for the enslavement of people. And that's according to its naming guidelines. So they're saying we're not just randomly taking T.C. Williams off of our building or off our law school, that we have some guidelines. And a part of those guidelines seems reasonable to me that in your guidelines you would have, we don't want to name a building after a slave owner. Uh, I'm going to take Is a law call. Hold on. I'm going to take a call. Fahima, you're on the line. I got 30 seconds. Yeah. Yes, just very briefly. Uh, well, I'm sure that, that uh, 25000 is long gone unless it was in an endowment. But I wanted to say in Everson, Illinois, they use the marijuana proceeds in order to provide reparations to those who were discriminated um, and redlined from housing. At Georgetown University, they provided legacy scholarships for those whose ancestors were sold to save the university. And lastly, in Virginia, they 
providing scholarships to the descendants of those who they were denied an education because they closed the school because they didn't want to con- to uh, uh, go along with Brown versus Board of Education. I don't think we should be concerned about where the money is coming from. And I would like to ask your guest, if she had a car accident and the insurance had insurance claim, is she going to concern herself with the impact that that check she's going to get from the insurance claim is going to have on the insurance company? I think not. Thank you, Fahima, for that question. I think that's for you, Melanie. Give me a quick response to that because yes, I do want to talk uh, to Dr. That, Davis about the money. That's that's a completely different situation. You have an agreement uh, in an insurance situation that should you get into an accident that you are provided with coverage, you're provided with a situation to be made whole that is not based on the color of my skin and and the people who are shareholders in that insurance company in that insurance industry assume a certain amount of risk based on numbers not a journey side note full disclosure uh, I have a life and health license and, and one of my side businesses is a financial education and financial advising. So in an insurance um, situation, that risk is assumed, that risk is calculated based on things like my driving record and, and other uh, statistical calculations. You know, they use math to assume those risks. So no, I would not be concerned about that. Insurance companies are designed to make money. They are making money even when they are paying out settlements for accidents that happen. So no, there is no concern about fairness because the way it is designed is already designed to be fair. All right. Uh, Thank you, Melanie. That's a response to Fahima's question. Uh, Dr. Davis, just got a couple of minutes left. I do want to go to what Fahima talked about in terms of Evanston, Illinois. And you and I both are very familiar with the Evanston model, the $10 million that was set aside to address the uh, black folks who were discriminated against uh, in Evanston due to redlining. They're able to apply for these $25,000 housing grants. What we know about that program is that that marijuana tax has come up short, that they had three dispensaries in the city of Evanston that they were expecting to get get the $10 million from, and then during COVID, one or two of those dispensaries closed, and they haven't actually been able to raise that $10 million. So we know that getting the money to fund reparations is really a significant issue when you think about reparations. So how is San Francisco thinking about whether it's $5 million or 500000 or 50000 We know getting that money isn't likely to come from your general fund. It has to be raised somehow, which means this reparations becomes a political hot potato because you got to have elected officials who's willing to vote probably to raise taxes or to do something else to raise this money. So how is San Francisco thinking about the money? Yeah, I mean, definitely there will be conversations around, you know, um, fees or, you know, where that money will be raised from in terms of taxes. But I would say also we have, I mentioned before, the slavery disclosure ordinance, which was an opportunity for people to disclose whether they had made money as an organization from slavery. And there's an opportunity in that um, for folks to, at this point in time, voluntarily contribute to a fund that would help offset um, folks impacted by slavery. And I think probably what will happen over the next year, and I know you meant, you know, when we were in Evanston, they mentioned the potential of 
ordinances like this to generate revenue, right? To go after the insurance companies that continue to take money on claims for Black people that they never paid to Black folks. So I think we're looking at a private-public partnership and looking at how to raise funds from um, entities that have billions of dollars that never gave money back to the people that they um, really abused and took advantage of. Go ahead, Melody. You got 30 seconds. Can I just make a quick comment? Sure. That when we're talking about entities, and, and earlier I believe you said that the government was an inanimate object, and, and I, I just, I, I can't, I have to offer a little bit of pushback on that. Even these banks and companies are made of stakeholders. They are made of people who are working people who have jobs, including Black people. And, and the reality is, from an economic perspective, anytime you raise the price of something, it is still going to negatively affect Black people. It's going to negatively affect everyone. If you get this money from uh, the, these banks, these entities called banks, that money has to come from somewhere. And if it has to raise money that is going to cut the running of that bank, people are going to lose jobs, including black and brown people. The same thing with the government. The, the government is going to have to raise taxes, no matter what level of government it is. That money has to come from somewhere. No, that's no, an, no that's doubt an about that. Policy, which raises prices for everyone, is going to affect black people in a negative way. No doubt about that, Melanie. Let me clear up what I meant by that. I was just trying to make the distinction between the they's indicating that it wasn't, uh, you know, we weren't identifying individuals. We were talking about a system, our government. And of course, our government is made up of people and we're all taxpayers. And whenever there's a policy made, we all pay the price for it. But we don't hear these same arguments when it comes to tax cuts for the rich. The huge subsidies that are given to big corporations when we bail out the banks, nobody starts talking about fairness to poor people and to black people. So when we have this conversation about reparations, we do have to think about parity. We have to think about how black folks have been disadvantaged in this country and how these arguments about let's be fair have rarely come into the conversation. This is such a rich conversation. Obviously, we're going to continue to watch San Francisco. We're going to have both of you ladies back. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Cheryl, thank you, Melanie. Uh, great conversation. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. News, sports, and traffic up next. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.